0: Hello, everybody. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. The NBN is run by volunteers, but it also has considerable expenses. In order to continue bringing you the in-depth author interviews that you count on, we have to pay our bills. So we'd like you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the network. It's easy to do. Just go to any NBN page and follow the donation link. Since we're part of Amherst College Library, you'll be taken to an Amherst College Library page. Go to the NBN line on that page and follow the instructions. That's it. From all of us at the network, thanks for your support. Hello and welcome to the New Books and Digital Culture podcast. I'm your host, Greg Evans. What would it be like to live in a world with no cash, no coin purses or wallets stuffed with dollar bills, no piggy banks, no wishing wells, no money under the pillow from the tooth fairy? How would we buy old LPs or use lawnmowers at flea markets or on Craigslist? What would you leave next to your cup of coffee at the diner? How could you tip a street performer? What would Scrooge McDuck swim in? Today's book is The End of Money, Counterfeiters, Preachers, Techies, Dreamers, and the Coming Cashless Society, written by David Woolman and published by DaCapo Press, in which he takes an in-depth look at the history and heritage of physical cash, what it means to us in the modern world, and what forms it could take in the future. Hi David, thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Uh, I am an author and journalist. Uh, I live in Portland, Oregon. And I am a contributing editor at Wired magazine. And when I'm not uh, writing magazine articles, I write nonfiction books. And I seem to have accidentally fallen into a, a beat or pseudo-beat uh, that I guess could be best described as a guy who's interested in seemingly small and seemingly simple, straightforward topics that, in fact when you put them under the microscope, are anything but simple. Uh, This was definitely the case with this most recent project. The book is called The End of Money, and it is about uh, the past, present, and dubious future of of cash.
0: Yeah, and a very good uh, examination it is, too. It, It stood up to that microscopic examination, as you say. Uh, you enlisted quite an amazing and sometimes colorful cast of characters to help you illustrate the points and concepts you lay out. Why did you decide to write this book, and how did you arrive at the idea to structure it that way?
1: Well, it began i I think in early two thousand and nine, I was reading a little bit in the newspaper about the costs of manufacturing pennies and nickels uh, as many people may. No, of late. We are, uh, depending on the date, of course, because the spot price of metals is quite variable, but we're at roughly two and a half cents uh, uh, per unit per penny right now. And it costs about 11 cents per unit per nickel right now. And uh, the numbers were similarly lopsided back in 2009 when I was reading up on this and uh, experiencing some mild outrage just because you don't have to be an economist to see that as a, a ridiculous proposition. The the subject had, had sort of been covered, you know, there was an episode in the West Wing that was poking fun at the uh, citizens to retire the penny, and uh, the Wall Street Journal took a stab at this, uh, Stephen Colbert. Somehow, though, I wanted to kind of get into the fray a little bit of the discussion about, at least about small change. My thinking on it had not yet kind of moved to the place of, scrutinizing cash in its entirety right then i was kicking around some ideas with an editor at wired and that's when we came up with the kind of more blustery um, pugnacious thesis for a short essay well let's just kill cash already everything else in our lives is moving to the digital realm but cash is so ridiculously analog Uh, let's move on already and the response to the essay was enormous, not always necessarily friendly by any stretch, but enormous, even just by the sheer volume of correspondences I received from people compared to, you know, a feature I would write that was four times uh, as long and, and much more substantive, I would think. Uh, but I really obviously struck a nerve. And that that was sort of indicator number one that this subject might have legs as far as a book was concerned. And then secondly, what happened is one angry reader who wrote in after a kind of a tirade about fiat currencies and the Federal Reserve and uh, specifically getting rid of the Federal Reserve, he said this thing to me with his note. He said, do you even know what money is? It sort of stopped me in my tracks a little bit because I felt like, Well, yes, I do. You know, I know some of these basics that come packaged in economics jargon, like uh, medium of exchange and standard unit of account and store of value. But he got me thinking about, you know, how much I did or frankly didn't know about the history of money and the history of coinage and then banknotes. And their, their role in our lives, their impact on our psyche, their place in our, our sense of nationalism, all of it. And so that was sort of motivation number two for the book project was to go out and answer this question of, of what is money, but, but through the specific lens of cash or this question of, uh, of cash's fate. And, and so I set off to try and do that.
0: Uh, you also talk about your one-year attempt to go without cash. Um, could you tell us a bit about uh, what that was like?
1: Sure. And, you know, there there are two different ways to come at this, this piece of the topic. Some of it has to do with really just um, finding an entryway into what could have been a more academic subject matter, right? But I'm not an economist or an academic. I, I want to write something that is informative, I hope, but also entertaining. And... You know, to do that, you have to um, reach into your tool bag, especially with a subject that, you know, money and cash could be more sexy than that. Well, if you start talking about uh, sovereign currencies and central banking, all of a sudden we're not quite in the realm of hot, sexy topics anymore. So you have to uh, be on guard or I guess uh, the other way to put it is you have to work hard to keep – people interested in a topic they they might think they're not at all interested in. And colorful characters is obviously top of the list as far as tactics for doing so. And then number two is kind of this conversational tone, uh, at, which you use to describe personal experiences. And for me, I felt like the attempt to avoid cash, not even touch the stuff would be a useful way to kind of sprinkle into the the manuscript um, You know the, yeah. Some of the conversational aspects Of this topic And and dive into the personal a little bit more You know I didn't want it to be all about me At all because That's not really my style And because who wants to read for 10 pages about me Struggling with a parking meter somewhere It's just not you know this is not George Plimpton lining up against the Detroit Lions Kind of uh, participatory journalism Excitement But there were occasions, and we can touch on some if you'd like, when, uh, you know, when, when my cashless lifestyle did sort of get me into a pickle a little bit. And when I felt like it could sincerely add to the conversation or the points I was trying to make in that particular section, well, then I would kind of, um, bring it in or roll it out. And when it really felt, um, extraneous or, um, kind of showy or silly, uh, I I got rid of it, and of course, you know, I'm hearing from people who say there's not enough of of you and your cashless year in the book, and then I'm also hearing, thankfully, uh, from people who say, no, 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 that was just enough. Like we don't we don't need you in the parking meter. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, what I am curious about is, uh, has that experiment had any permanent effects for you? Has it changed your routine permanently?
1: Not too much. I mean. You know, the, the fact of the matter is it would be infinitely harder to go all cash for a whole year, if not impossible practically, or the right. financial and time costs of that would be severe as far as going off to pay my, my car loan and my oh, payments yeah. and all these things in cash. I and mean, it would just be asinine. Uh, and there were many weeks that would go by where I didn't really even notice that I was, uh, conducting this, this Experiment or living this uh, alternative lifestyle deliberately, although not the alternative lifestyle you might be thinking right there. Um, so, so no. anyway, it wasn't uh, it wasn't that that hard. I'm trying to think of uh, ways that has had uh, had a permanent impact on my life. I, I certainly have more of an allergy to paper money than than most people, <laughs> I think, and of course. You know, you can go out and buy the book with cash. Definitely that, that comes up a lot of book readings. And of course, if someone were to give me a briefcase full of cash and it was totally above board transaction, I would not refuse it. I still, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a writer, not a gazillionaire. So I respect cash's purchasing power, right? But when it right. comes to these pale green and beige-ish pieces of paper, uh, I find them particularly filthy, and I don't. I really just don't want to touch the stuff. And so I think the I was kind of mildly a germ phobe at the start of the project, and then as I thought more about this and did more research, even into like the bacteria that are growing on banknotes, you know, now I'm sort of a full fledged germ phobe. At least when it comes to to paper money.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's a compelling point there. Uh, it's not one I tend to. Notice myself, but it's—I think it's valid. Well, have you part noticed- of that has
1: to do with how uh, how wired we are to love this stuff, right? And this was a really fun section right. uh, to explore in the book and and kind of unpack the psychology of money uh, because yes. it, uh, part of the reason you've never thought of that is you know what could be more in, innocuous, number one, than cash, but also you know it's it's empowering, and certainly uh, Hollywood and MTV and, uh, have it in countless. Uh, images associated with power and wealth and success and, um, you know, romantic glory, the whole bit. Right. And even just when you're five years old and lose a tooth for the first time, you know, from that day forward, you are really wired to, to covet these coins and notes, whether, whether you want to admit it or not. And I don't mean covet like, you're some greedy jerk, right? It's just it's more talking about kind of the psychology of money and and how it right. plays tricks on our minds. You know, we don't think of banknotes as dirty pieces of paper. You know, why would we? But, you know, there aren't many other kinds of piece of paper that uh, you know, could be covered in filth sitting in the gutter
0: that you're gonna reach down and pick up. <laughs> well, it depends on how big it is, I guess. <laughs> Kind of moving toward uh, the time you spent talking about government's relationship to cash and how printing money helps some agencies and how cash makes other agencies' job more difficult. Uh, What do you think it would take for a government to examine these issues more closely and how likely is it that you think that will happen?
1: Well, it's a good question. I mean, here in the States, at least, we, you know, we see the question of the, of killing the penny sort of rise and fall every couple of years or so when someone in Congress is brave enough to propose it. And then it gets shot down pretty quickly through a combination of forces, I think that have to do with nostalgia, number one, and then uh, vested interests, whether it's sort of the vending machine industry or the the mint, the zinc uh, lobby. Uh, And it sounds silly. You know, I know we're not talking about, uh, you know, the oil lobby per se, but, uh, or oil Special interest. But nevertheless, you know, it, it's a little bit depressing that special, special interests can influence something as seemingly small as the fate of a pretty much worthless uh, unit of coinage. Um, so that's here in the States. What, what would it mean? How could we get government agencies to have a more earnest dialogue about the, the pros and cons of cash? I think if we look abroad, we can see examples of how this actually is happening. And one place uh, where... The conversation is um, most lively right now is in Sweden. Uh, they have a culture where they used to use a lot of cash, but now they've had a real backlash. And you have a union of bank employees lobbying the government quite hard to get rid of cash entirely because they're sick of robberies and mm-hmm. the costs that they incur. And you also have a more outspoken head of the central bank uh, which I think matters, and you know he he is um, referenced in the book because he says some things that central bankers are not supposed to say, uh, either by content or clarity. <laughs> you know, central, right. central bankers are supposed to be uh, boring, number one, and vague, number two. And you know, he said things to me that. And and in public that, frankly, uh, you know, you couldn't really get away with here, at least in the United States right now. For example, he was saying, you know, government needs to have a more honest accounting of the cost of cash. This is not word for word, obviously. But his point was that government needs to have a more honest accounting of the cost of cash. It's not just manufacturing, distributing and babysitting the stuff, right? Government also has to pay law enforcement officials to go after bank robbers and pimps and drug dealers, all the people that are using cash uh, to um, bolster their businesses. And right. government has to pay not just to uh, reimburse the bank for lost funds or damage to a vault or what have you, but you know the um the hospital bill for the bank employee that was injured or the PTSD counseling for those who were involved in a, a, a scary episode or what have you you know there are these concentric circles um that extend outward uh from from cash itself whether or not it's involved in criminal enterprise that you know this guy is saying we we need to account for um, more carefully because citizens are incorrectly thinking that having correct change available to them in every single cash register throughout the land is like a, um, a constitutional right for them when it isn't, it's something, you know, it's a service. And I, you know, I think, I think that's something that will be important for this, for the future of, of money and, and, and cash and specifically. Uh, so if, if we are in the States ever going to move ahead with, you know, forget just killing cash entirely. If you, if that's too radical for you, let's talk about killing the $100 bill. You know, that conversation has to be from treasury on one side, right. which is obviously profiting to talking with the FBI and secret service and DEA about how much the, the role of the $100 bill in the underground economy uh, makes their job harder.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it was, uh, fascinating to, and that's another thing that had never really occurred to me when thinking about money is all the, the pluses and minuses in terms of the profit involved, so to speak, versus the cost of it. It was, uh, there were one of many eye-opening things about the book. Uh, you mentioned the, the shadow economy, um, that exists because of the anonymity of cash. How would no more cash prevent crime? Um, could non trackable alternatives be found?
1: So, the short answer is that getting rid of cash, of course, will not eliminate crime. And I, I don't think from your question that's what you were suggesting. But no, the position no. I have to uh, take or a disclaimer right. I feel compelled to make, uh, because a lot of people sort of. Uh, They have this reflex response that, well, if you get rid of cash, it's not like you're going to get rid of crime. Crooks will just move into the digital realm. And of course they will. You know, they're already there in spades. But the reality is that, let's talk about bank robberies in the United States, for example. 10,000 bank robberies here in 2009, 2010. There is no way you could honestly tell me that in the cashless future, all 10,000 of those idiot thugs would be tech savvy enough to, um, adapt and become, uh, computer hackers. So, you know, it's kind of a silly example, but it, but it also isn't. You know, the same thing is true for, for drug dealers or pimps or tax evasion. You know, all of prostitution and tax evasion, all of these things will persist in the digital future. Yes. But, you know, you make, you make the enterprise a little bit more difficult and that's, uh, you know, you're creating a disincentive, uh, in the economic sense of it, and you're just making the bar a little bit higher so that less people are able to, um, engage in the activity. You know, it's a little bit like, um, you know, gun laws or something like that. You know, of course, nobody is right. naive to think that we will end violent crime in America by making guns a little harder to come by. But why not raise the bar a little to make it more difficult so that some of the people we don't want to have guns can't get them. And, you know, so I, I think that's that's where this conversation uh, is pointed. And, but, you know, what's interesting is that guns, you know, guns have been implicated as sort of problematic for, for eons, right? But cash has really, nobody is, has ever stepped up to indict cash in any way, shape, or form. And that's what was kind of fun about this project, if not suicidal. <laughs> I mean,
0: yeah, right.
1: You know, there's a sacred cow element to cash for a number of reasons, some of which we touched on a moment ago. You know, we're wired to love this stuff from a very early age, but also there's this sense of cash's relationship to, to liberty. And of course, the anonymity of transactions is very important to people. And the sense that, you know, using cash is, is almost more noble or virtuous than using other payment mechanisms and, uh, or other ways to store value. And, um, you know, that's a legitimate. Sometimes, but it's also a um, really naive point of view in other ways.
0: In talking about uh, crime and how cash relates to it, uh, it kind of comes into the issue also of uh, privacy and anonymity, which you get into uh, in the book. Is, do you think there's a way that electronically based systems or a cashless system, can retain any sort of level of my personal privacy, even if I'm not doing anything more than, you know, buying books on Amazon, um, yet at the same time be more resistant to to crime and terrorism funding and money laundering and such?
1: I think that's the essential question, right? I, I don't think anything will ever provide the anonymity that cash does, although we're seeing a, a glimmer of hope with something called Bitcoin, Right now, it's just this kind of cryptocurrency that a lot of techies are quite enthusiastic about. But other people will very quickly say that it is not at all um, secure in the anonymity sense of it. Uh, and, you know, this is one of cash's uh, great attributes. But the the distinction that I tried to highlight in the book is really the difference between anonymity and privacy. And you know i'm i'm hoping that there's room for technologists in the near future and i and i think we're seeing signs of this not just with bitcoin but other technologies out there that i'm hearing about where technologists can come up with you know more robust ways to protect our privacy certainly more so than the existing uh debit and credit card networks right but you know i i think i would also push back a little bit of Toward those who are most vocal and most um, def- most eager to defend the the benefit of being anonymous uh, with cash, because I, I'm I find that the people who really care most passionately about that are the ones who want a free ride and don't want to pay their taxes or are not. are are involved in sort of nefarious activities. And of course, you know, there are a gazillion people out there who just want to buy a a box of chocolates for their sweetheart on Valentine's Day with cash, and that is hardly illicit activity. So I get that. Those people, though, they want privacy. They don't want anonymity. Right. So, you know, in conversation, of course, what's the difference really? But, you know, I think brass tacks, there's actually a huge difference. And in a civil society, not only do you not – Want anonymity, you don't even deserve anonymity. You know, if you're going to vote, if you're going to have a driver's license, if you're um, if you actually wanted to pay your taxes, already you are a known quantity in the right, in right. sense of it, right? So anonymity is already um, a non-starter. The question is, do you have adequate privacy, and we should be fighting for privacy and better privacy in the age of Facebook and Google and the rest of it. so i'm I'm not at all blase about identity theft issues and privacy issues, you know, whether it's government or corporations snooping on us. But in a civil society, there is a tension between your civil liberties and law enforcement's right to know stuff or hunt for information. That is just how it is. And it can be a real drag and it can be very disconcerting, you know, when watching a movie like Minority Report or when just traveling on an airline and going through – airport security uh and seeing cameras everywhere and having all of your stuff examined you know that is an enormous invasion of privacy but it is the kind of uh continuous tug of war between our right to privacy and law enforcement's right need to know things and you know this again in the sort of uh continuing the vein of, of kind of a suicidal thinking or thesis. I don't know if this is necessarily the most popular line of thinking, but it's one I'm willing to defend because I think uh, I think it happens to be accurate.
0: Well, I, I do see your point. Uh, for me personally, I tend to be kind of old school um, just in the sense of I, I'm not keen about having everybody and their brother know what I'm doing, even if I'm not doing anything uh illicit or shameful or anything else just in general uh i personally have chosen not to do anything with something like facebook for that very reason but at the but at the same time i also recognize that attitudes toward privacy are are changing in current generations and that uh the the tension that you describe is is changing i don't know whether one direction or the other but it it's not like it, it's not the same as it used to be. Right.
1: I think that's uh, um, an astute observation. And,
0: and you know, I see that a lot
1: with, like, the the tech-savvy demographic that is so eager to say yes to mobile payment tools especially because a lot of those same people know some of the potential security pitfalls, et cetera. But, you know, they, they see a value proposition in using these tools. They're excited to use them. They live right. in the age of kind of sharing and uh and Where transparency is a greater virtue than than privacy, perhaps or I should say secrecy, uh, you know again i don 't think those people are necessarily blase about privacy and vision either, but I think you're you're absolutely right that our notion of what is the right amount of privacy is actually a, a moving target through through time and through history
0: yeah uh, and and it 's to a certain extent illusory as 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 you mentioned because I do buy online. I do I do use a debit card. I do have a smartphone. Oh, we know where you are. <laughs> oh, yes. Greg, I can see you now with my hidden cameras. <laughs> can you see what I'm doing now?
1: <laughs> Hopefully you're not uh, making a rude gesture toward me or something.
0: No, no, no. Uh, and... and in that context, um, you've mentioned uh, carrying around in your wallet various buy 10, get one free cards from local coffee shops. I, I've got a few myself, mostly from pizza and sandwich shops. Uh, and that's, on the one hand, that kind of um, incentive tracking is not um, anonymous or private either, and yet we all eagerly embrace it uh, or embracing the... Uh, the uh, the buyer's card at your supermarket so that you get the cheaper price and they get to track what you buy all the time or what the person holding your card is buying because it's not necessarily they don't know you, but they know your signature. So all these issues of privacy and whatnot are a lot more complex than than kind of the knee-jerk reaction that some people have about, I want my privacy.
1: It is so true. And, you know, zooming out a little, this is – kind of the incredible paradox for me that has made this whole project so interesting is that to such a great extent, we've actually pushed cash pretty far to the periphery of our everyday lives, at least people like you and me in in wealthier countries. And yet when you uh, draw attention to that fact and urge people to walk over to the edge of the cliff and say, hey, wow, you know, cash is just a few hundred yards from the edge here. Do we what is its fate? Do we want to uh, push it over the cliff? Do we want to save it? You know, or let's get rid of it already. People go bananas, uh, in defense mm-hmm. of cash as if it was the thing they're using all the time to store their wealth. And as a medium of exchange, etc. when all of those people enjoy the benefits of money in electronic form, in various electronic forms, not just credit cards. Uh, you know, they enjoy these benefits, even though they don't, even stop to recognize it in that way, you know, or right. enjoy the benefits. You know, just having a bank account, you know, there's no drawer with your name on it, Greg, at the bank. That wait, what? With a pile of paper or gold bars inside or anything like that. You know, it's just zeros and ones on com- on computers. So sure. money is electronic mostly already, and it's it's almost like people don't like to be reminded of that fact. Uh, you know let alone sort of money's um the magic of money's value uh or the currency's value and you know when you, when you draw attention to these things and ask people to kind of uh, tag along with you on a journey exploring some of these questions they get very uncomfortable about the privacy thing about the value of money about banks and you know that is you know that that's interesting and makes for terrific conversation but specifically when it comes to um defending cash that is quite the paradox that so many people don't really use it that much, but then they go nuts when you say, well, maybe you don't really need it anymore.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I think that it may be that for a lot of people, although they don't use it in concrete form, it's still enough of a, a concept a solid concept in their head that they use it for accounting, even as they're moving away from using it physically.
1: I think you're right. I think you're right. But I, my guess, and I've seen some of these things already in action, is that um, digital tools are are rapidly coming along to recreate that experience of kind of dealing with tactile objects, so you um, you kind of get the same satisfaction and kind of right, blanket yeah. feeling of familiarity with the objects, or relinquishing the funds that comes from you know today handing over those those real-world pieces of paper, uh, you know, there are going to be plenty of technologies to kind of recreate that experience. So I think uh, once you are looking at this more in the, you know, the 8 to 18-year time horizon as opposed to the 8 to 18-month time horizon, uh, you know, all kinds of amazing things are coming down the pipe.
0: Right, yeah. And one of the uh, kind of harking back to the the buy 10, get one free cards one of the things that reading your book one idea that made it that uh popped into my head as a result is wouldn't it be nice if along with swiping your debit card or waving your phone to make a payment uh, that sort of incentive tracking could be included in the transaction electronically without us having to deal with all those little cards oh it's coming
1: don't worry if not it's already here i think there's a there's an app called perka that i've seen P-E-R-K and no, I'm not like a show for their company or anything like that. <laughs> and no, none of the coffee shops that I frequent actually accept the thing, but uh, it's the same exact yeah. idea you're talking about. Do away with that paper clip of those, uh, you know, frequent customer cards. And when you have 10 visits, it's logged into your phone and your 11th cup of coffee is free. Or in fact, if you use this particular service, maybe you only have to purchase nine cups of coffee before your 10th one is free. Whereas right. the rest of the Lilliputians using cash, uh, you know, they have to buy 10 of them before the freebie and they have to deal with the, the costs and risks of uh, cash existence anyway.
0: Right. And there's a little bit of a parallel between the two. I mean, whether I'm handling, handing bills, or, or whether I'm using a, a little cardboard card with stamps or, or uh, cutouts, uh, I'm still having to handle it and move it back and forth, and there may be other ways to do it. So at the same time that maybe there's a reluctance to give up cash, we're still kind of hooked on these little cards.
1: <laughs> Sounds like you definitely are. <laughs> no, and, I, and I am too. You know, nobody likes to. It's because they have value uh, you know, right. in them. It's not very much, frankly, but it's there. And... You know, that's, that's the thing. As soon as people see value proposition and as much as that's kind of an, an MBA term that I loathe, it's, it's the, it's the right one to call on in these circumstances. You know, people right. don't like these talking about the cashless future or let's just say new forms of electronic money. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden you roll out one of these tools that's easy to use and PS if you use this, you get to save 10 to 15% on all of your purchases at Starbucks or target or American airlines you know, people dive in and, you know, that is our, that is our legacy. You know, we wait for the value proposition and well, uh, or I should that, that's sort of step two. That our our legacy is that, you know, we are very skeptical of new technologies at first, probably as we should be. Um, but, look back at how much people thought that putting radios in automobiles was going to be the end of the world and it would just be carnage on the highways and gradually we warmed to the idea and then suddenly someone actually saw some value proposition there because they could listen to some cool tunes or npr and you know then all of a sudden you live in a different world and every car has not just a radio but cd player etc and you know same thing is happening with with future forms of money and especially mobile money. You know, people are very distrusting of it right now, especially I shouldn't say everyone, but you know, the older generation is going to be traditionally much more uh, distrusting of mistrusting of these tools than younger, more tech savvy people. But you know, as the value proposition becomes that much clearer, people will say yes, Uh, they, they do. That's, that's our habit.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm of an older generation and yet because I have been in IT all my life I tend to be more on the cutting edge of a lot of things but I do definitely see that slow grudging acceptance of new technology and and it takes longer with people over a certain age
1: and that's and I don't think you know how could there possibly be anything wrong with that and and you know so those does. who no not that you're saying so but I think that's both natural and probably a good thing, right? Because they have, um,
0: you know, a, a uh, we've learned skepticism. They've learned
1: you've learned from skepticism, and also you've uh, you've seen more, especially you've seen more kind of ups and downs with the economy. You've probably through the years have come to know more people who had trouble with credit card debt or identity theft in this, you know, so those years also mean a kind of wisdom that someone who's young and over eager to adopt a new technology, they, they might not have their guard up about some of these things. And, um, you know, you, you especially see this with people who are either, um, you know of the the Great Depression generation or offspring of of people who really had it hard during the depression, you know they really believe that the safest thing they can do with their money is hide it in a box under their bed
0: and um, that kind of brings up a an interesting point uh, The difference between ingrained systems and and the weight of of history versus well you, you talk a lot about India and how they are just embracing this this new cashless society idea because they don't have that kind of um, impediment and baggage to, to bring along. They don't have that embedded uh, you know, systems in place that would kind of prevent switching over.
1: Right. And this for me, this was really the most revelatory part of the whole project, exploring this this very counterintuitive idea that cash is the enemy of the poor,
0: And, you know, going
1: to India and seeing a young man in the slums of Delhi go, you know, just tell me what his life was like before this mobile money tool and after it. And before it meant that when he wanted to send or deliver a tiny, tiny remittance payment to his family members in the countryside, it was like a day and a half bus ride to get there, a day and a half bus ride to get back. So that's three days away from income generation, right? He's got to pay someone to look after his little shop. He's got to worry about the rest of his modest savings, his, the tea canister in his apartment. Uh, he's got to pay the bus fare, etc. All these costs, right? Just to deliver a little bit of money. And then he comes back. Now that he has one of these mobile banking and mobile money transfer tools through his phone, You know, not a smartphone. That's the thing I get all the time. Well, the poor don't have smartphones. You know, he's got this cheapo Nokia brand thing, just like the rest of the three billion people on earth who also are using these things. He can send that money like a text message, you know, to his countryside, and it's just a staggering improvement in his well-being and in his potential for building financial stability, climbing out of poverty, and staying out of poverty because you know cash is actually a trap or if you're if you're trapped in cash you know the costs are exacerbated and you know it's not specifically because cash itself is bad you know the the more nuanced reality is that cash's inconvertibility into electronic form can be so crushing for those people who who are on the margins and that's you know that's most of the planet and right. You know, this was really the most, you know, revelatory A and B really it was such exciting stuff to be reporting on because it's so world-changing happening right now. Uh, but it also pulled the conversation from the kind of, uh, you know, in, interesting but but also a little bit tongue-in-cheek, you know, banknotes are covered in germs. Okay, well, that's <laughs> changed the world. But when you talk about the fight against global poverty uh, and the importance of helping people access the formal economy and, you know, the Gates foundation giving $500 million to support development of these kind of technologies. I mean, now, now you're really in, uh, in, in a substantive area. And for me, that was just, uh, you know, it's just a delight to be learning about that and talking to experts about it. And, and again, you know, there's a kind of counterintuitive thread that as a writer or journalist, you know, I really, I devour that kind of thing because on its surface, you Again, who's going to indict cash right What could be what could be better than for the poor than a handful of money? but in fact, it's not so simple, and money has different forms, and those different forms come with different costs and It turns out that the costs of cash fall most heavily on the poor.
0: yeah, that was one of the most illuminating part of the book for me uh, and and just uh, I, like you, I'm fascinated by the idea and excited by it.
1: Well, I think a number I saw recently is uh, – so one of the banner examples of these technologies is a thing called M-Pesa in Kenya, uh, which I think is going on about five years now. Uh, M, by the way, for mobile, M-Pesa is Swahili for money. And it started as a very simple money transfer service. The advertising was very straightforward, which was part of their success, you know, send money home. You know, sure. check—the remittance payments I was just describing, uh, often from an urban center like Nairobi to family members in the countryside. Right. Well, already they have. I don't know if it's like a quarter or half of all adults in Kenya are using this service. But even more, walloping of a figure is that more money, more value is moving through the pipeline. Of the Mpesa system, then Western Union is transmitting around the globe. That's amazing. It really is incredible stuff, and uh, you know, I think uh, I think more people <laughs> need to be writing about. It. I certainly want to be.
0: Yeah. So then that kind of brings up my next question, which is, uh, what are some of the advantages, shall we say, of the informal economy that a cashless society would need to replicate? For instance, uh, what do you think would happen to? Under the table transactions. I mean, you mentioned paying a housekeeper is one example, or tipping, or flea markets, farmers markets. Uh, how about things like uh, classified ads, local private sale or trade, penny pincher type of papers, websites like Craigslist? What do you think would happen with those kinds of things, or barter systems, for instance?
1: Well, I I just am not of the opinion that sunlight is bad, and maybe that's because I'm a journalist. But, uh, you know, I'm very sympathetic to the, the waiter or the housekeeper who does not want to declare income because they're already on the edge and just getting pummeled because the economy is right. terrible and we live in a, a society that, um, enables and empowers the 1% at the expense of the 99%. But to me, it is, it's faulty logic to go from there to then say, therefore I think it's okay for the housekeeper to dodge paying taxes, even though I want Google to pay its taxes. You know, I understand that giant corporations hiding their, their taxes, you know, by way of convoluted schemes and offshore accounts is, uh, has a much greater impact on the economy. But, you know, we, I think our nonchalance about everyday people hiding their taxes or, or hiding income and not paying taxes, or in your turn of phrase, under the table transactions, you know, our nonchalance about that actually um, circles back to kind of encourage an entire culture of nonchalance about Mm. honesty with money. And maybe that's why we and our policy, you know, our policymakers aren't more um, aggressive when it comes to clamping down on tax evasion. You know, the number right now from the most recent audit for the tax gap, right, what we owe versus what we pay, or I'm sorry, what we pay versus what we owe. You know, this is on the order of 400 to $500 billion a year. Wow. Now, not all of that is cash-enabled evasion, obviously. Plenty of that is electronic, but a lot of it is because of cash. And so, you know, we need to do something about that. And it's sort of, you know, I don't want to sound preachy, although it's probably too late here, but that—that that's all of us, right? And so until we can buck up and say, you know, it's not okay for the housekeeper, just like it's not okay for Warren Buffett. But having said that, you know, I, I feel like it, the other example – let me just do the other example here because it's even easier with immigration. A lot of people say, well, if you get rid of cash, how are we going to pay undocumented workers? Because they don't want uh, the scrutiny. They don't want their transactions to be traceable because they get to get deported, et cetera, right? So what, right. what you're saying in parentheses there is that our horrible immigration system is okay. I want to keep the status quo. Therefore, I want to protect – you know, and and therefore we need cash around to pay the undocumented workers working in the status quo quote, situation. Do you see what I mean? As sure. A, yeah. Not only is cash kind of a drag and problematic, but we also have a totally unsustainable and terrible immigration system. Let's fix that. <laughs> and the same thing could be said with with tipping, right? So obviously, I don't want to get rid of cash before we have suitable alternatives for covering the needs of waiters and bellmen and taxi drivers, et cetera. But I also think it's a false premise to say that, um, you know, to say confidently that our system of paying people like 220 an hour, and then the rest of their income is covered by tips, you know, to to say that that's like a a really strong approach to compensation, I think it's just so asinine. It's why Europe has completely moved to, um, you know, a service service charge. And this is like 19th century, um, aristocratic silliness, the, the culture. Yeah. And maybe what we need is not only to get rid of cash, but then also, in fact, pay people like a living wage. Uh, so, you know, it's almost like a, a two wrongs don't make a right situation for right. when it comes to tax evasion or the, the tipping or, or the undocumented workers thing.
0: Well, I, I'm in total agreement with you there because I've spent some time as a waiter and it's it has always struck me as being – very unfair yeah i
1: mean it's kind of like indentured servitude with like some frosting on top and just it's yeah. ridiculous
0: and then to turn that around you know, most waiters i ever knew have fudged a bit on reporting their tips
1: right and you know i can't blame them again but that's sort of a statement about the economy i don't think that's that's right a statement i don't really think that's a defense of tax evasion or i hope it is you know what i mean i just don't think tax evasion is okay and i know there's a kind of anti-Robin Hood feeling to that kind of comment. Um, also known as in popul- unpopular statement number 24 by David. But it's still, it's still the case. And I just, um, you know, corporate tax evasion and white collar crime and wealthy bankers infuriate me as much as the next guy. But I think in a very indirect way, we enable them when we turn the other cheek to, to small scale tax evasion.
0: Oh I, yeah I, that's a very valid point. I'm I'm again I have to say I'm popular or not I have to agree. Um moving from that into a more technological realm especially in the light of recent events like the hacking of multiple banking and merchant systems and credit card information how much work do you think needs to be done to guarantee security and privacy enough that people would trust it, as it were, the the switch to a cashless system or to a predominantly cashless system.
1: Much more work uh, needs to be done. You know, it's interesting. There've been so many breaches with credit card companies, right? But and yet, you know, it's not like they're going broke anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. Millions and millions and millions of people see a value proposition there. They see it as safe enough. So they go for it, and I'm not. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't, but it's an interesting thing that you know. No, no system is totally safe, right? It's the thing with no, cash, no. you could have a counterfeit in your wallet right now and just not know it. And so the issue is making it safe enough so that people do this kind of cost benefit or risk analysis where they say, okay, it's, it's worth it to me. And you know, the credit card companies to a great extent have, have achieved that, but I think. Um, for technology companies, especially working in the mobile money space, you know, the bar is even higher because people are very suspicious of what's happening with their phone. And rightly so, I think, because uh, as I read in the book, you know, it's one thing to drop a call. It's another thing if you're going to drop my money into it. <laughs> no, no, I no, never no. <laughs> come back to you as a customer. Never, never, never. And I think a lot of these technologists and, and startups, they, they, they understand that um, need. Uh, for re- robust security systems and redundancies to protect people's money and, and level of privacy, at least to the level that they're familiar with now, if not, if not greater. Um, so there's, you know, there's definitely room and need to make these systems stronger, but we also need to be a little bit more realistic about, you know, what is absolute security versus what is really, really strong security. The other thing is I think it's, and I don't know if this is something you were envisioning or not, but I don't see us going from a cash society to a cashless society that use some alternative called X. You know, we're going to be a cashless society using alternatives, X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, and F, and onward. You know, there's going to be this kind of great flowering of, of types of money and um, currencies and payment technologies that you can use through various digital devices um, and, and in that sense, you know, cash is not something that's going to end because government declares it so on June 1st of 2025. 20, uh, you know, cash is dying this death by a thousand cuts and slowly, maturely, you know, there will come a day when, when banknotes and coins will be as anachronistic as, as a payphone, really, in, in my view. And, you know, four years from now, of course not, but, I, I think that's that's the way to think about this. It's that it's being nudged aside by by smarter and more convenient and more cost effective tools that people are saying yes to, and I don't know if if it will be the 700th new tool or the 50th new tool or the 10,000th new tool, but at some point we'll just have so many different ones that you know even. Governments and central banks will say, "You know what? This is making it, and babysitting and transporting this stuff is just costing us a little too much money because nobody's really using it. Let's uh, let's stop making everything but fives and dollar coins."
0: Well, and that's that's certainly a, a point that's well illustrated in your book, and it's one that I uh, initially was a bit skeptical about, but it, you build a strong case, and it's um, a very entertaining case too. Um what do you see as the biggest hurdle or hurdles to maybe not giving up cash totally but but adopting this new um, monetary model is it social or psychological and emotional or technological or political or nationalistic? What do you think is the the biggest factor or factors involved
1: i I think there are there are so many uh, political and, and nationalistic absolutely i mean he, look, here we can't even get rid of the penny. Uh, we can't even have an honest conversation about getting rid of the penny. Uh, so, so that's, uh, you know, that's a, a sort of a messy stew of political and uh, nostalgic and, um, nationalistic, uh, sentiments, uh, let alone sort of the psychology of, of money and the greenback. Uh, it's, it's a very powerful totem of our identity as Americans, and I think a lot of people stand by it more than they might want to admit. You know, because who wants to admit that they kind of love money, right? Uh, or at least the, the physical form of it, and without because they don't want to sound like a greedy jerk. But you know, we we like to we like these these symbols and this imagery more than we, we sometimes admit, but so there's the psychology thing for sure. I think there are technological hurdles. Absolutely. Not just uh, what new, we we need new technologies to make sure that waiters and bellmen and taxi drivers aren't getting stiffed in the digital future, of course, but I think the other technological hurdles and and probably one of the strongest defenses for having at least some cash around is, uh, you know, the power outage that isn't, just uh seven hours but what if it's seven weeks you know and all of our devices right. have run out of battery power and uh, mm-hmm. solar technology is hardly at a level where it could power everything you know so we would need yeah. we need something to transact with right and um so i think that's that's a valid defense i think maybe in the future we could actually end around that problem too in that you know, if we really, really were pretty much beyond cash, except for the disaster scenario, maybe we would have something like fives and tens issued by a combination of FEMA, the Red Cross, and the central bank that are distributed to citizens and stored in envelopes, and only you're only supposed to break them out after one week without electricity or something. And you know, I'm just I'm sure this is a cockamamie idea that people could just shoot all kinds of holes in, but. You know, in other words, if we reach a point where really the only strong defense for having cash around is this like serious disaster scenario, well, then maybe we should put a little energy into uh, coming up with a solution for it. Because if not, we're just going to be losing so much money and creating so much inefficiency in the economy during those many, many, many uh, years without said calamity or happening.
0: Right, right, and as one of the people in your book said, somebody will come up with something if it comes down to it.
1: I think so, and and
0: uh, but and, but better to have a plan in mind ahead of time. Exactly,
1: and you know another way to look at that, uh, as as technologist Dave Birch uh, says in the book, is that you know if if this disaster scenario gets bad enough, at a certain point, you're actually not worrying. You're not going to be worrying about small value banknotes for. Uh, Everyday transactions. What you need to be stockpiling are cans of beans and blankets and bullets. Uh, So (laughs) there's something to be said for that.
0: Right. What would be, what do you think would be the ideal form or concept of money given no technological limits or emotional or, or political baggage?
1: Well, I, th- you know, certainly uh, electronic money, um, national currencies have, have, uh, to a great extent proven to be quite strong and successful. But I think, uh, there's nothing stopping us in the digital future from further innovation in the space of alternative, inver- uh, and private and community currencies. So I- I'm quite excited about, about that. But I think, you know, how will we be transacting with these various forms of elect, of uh, digital currencies, national or otherwise, I think it will be, you know, it will invariably be through the, the phone or uh, more likely the, the future device that people long ago called, referred to as the mobile phone.
0: Well, with that forward-looking thought, I think I've taken up enough of your time. Uh, thank you so much for joining me and your for your intriguing and very entertaining book, uh, which I encourage all of our listeners to read. Uh, one final question. What are you working on now?
1: Well, I just uh, published a story in Wired about um, a counterfeiter in Germany, a man who was um, a, a, quite a successful artist and printmaker, but he ran into financial troubles and um, – Started to counterfeit U.S. one hundred dollar bills to the tune of sixteen to twenty million dollars worth, and um, his story is is quite interesting. And I'm sort of kind of it just came out, and so I'm sort of dealing with some of the response to that, and talking about if there might be a a, a film potential there. Um, and I, I have some other book ideas that they're cooking at the moment, but I'm still uh, thankfully so. Uh, I'm still really busy talking about the end of money. And, you know, that's that's a delight, you know, as, as pat as it sounds, I, I'm really not tired of talking about this subject yet because there are just so many facets and people bring really interesting new perspectives to the conversation all the time that, you know, sometimes in journalism, if you're writing about a certain species of beetle at a certain time, point, you're just kind of done with it. And you're ready for the next thing. And, you know, this topic is expansive enough that I haven't reached that um that threshold yet where i'm i'm tired of it and so that's that's really nice particularly because i don't have a new book topic yet
0: <laughs> well it is a, a far deeper discussion than might meet the eye at first as you said uh but again thank you for for joining me and uh for being on the show today i really enjoyed oh, it it's my
1: pleasure greg thank you
0: You've been listening to an interview with David Woolman, author of The End of Money, Counterfeiters, Preachers, Techies, Dreamers, and the Coming Cashless Society, which is published by Da Capo Press and is available now. It's well worth the read. I'm Greg Evans. I hope you enjoyed this New Books and Digital Culture podcast. If so, keep an eye out for the next one coming soon.